Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with me tonight is Joe Wren, who would never willingly expose his audience to a dangerous piece of film. Joe, how are we doing tonight? The lies you tell will not save you, my friend, for I am the person who will always bring out Old Boy as a good idea. I don't think Old Boy is cursed, though. Does anybody want to sit and watch Old Boy besides me? What not, about the gr- not, not the remake. Okay, Never fair, the remake. Okay, fair. All right, so more importantly, what about the gruesome people? Uh, the gruesome people, they listen to this show, and, and I don't know if you can... If, if you know this or not, but if you listen really hard, you still can't hear them because they don't have a microphone. But you do, my friend. And I'm uh, excited to say that this might be the last official recording in Discuss Metal Studio version one. Yeah, we're doing something a little different tonight. Uh, you may remember our episode, uh, Requiem for the Video Store. Uh, we're in the middle of moving Fright Lab headquarters Experiments need adequate space, after all, so we are making an upgrade. Uh, Now, I am willing to wager that most of our audience has moved furniture or moved house at least once before. Therefore, you know what an exhausting headache that can be. I've had to make multiple moves in the last year, and I have the scars and exhaustion to prove it. All that is to say, we're going to take a I don't know, a little more relaxed approach to tonight's episode. Thank you, God. So relax, settle in with a cup of coffee or something a little more stiff. You insist. There's something that's been on my mind tonight. It's good. It's a good night to grab a beer and let's talk. I want to set a scene for you. A beautiful old theater has decided to show a genuinely rare piece of cinematic history. It's a movie long considered lost and has been coveted by cinephiles for ages. But this movie has a, I don't know, a strange history. Every time this movie is shown, well, something goes wrong. Sometimes there are structure fires. Sometimes fights break out or a wave of seizures rolls across the audiences. Despite its reputation, people will give up a great deal of money or in some cases, their health and sanity to view this movie. And that movie's name? The Fury of the Demon. Uh, Wait, wait, no, I'm sorry, I I misread that. It's Antrim. Oh, wait, no, or or is it The Absolute End of the World? Everything I just described, of course, it's fiction. All three of the aforementioned movies have been on my recent watch list. Two of the three are actually really interesting, and the third is... And we'll talk about it a little later. Uh, needless to say, the reoccurrence of this particular plot point has really stuck with me. I'm convinced that a part of this recurring plot is just pure fun. It's a neat conceit, one that feels weirdly old but very modern at the same time. And that's because we're not just talking about a cursed piece of lost media. We're talking ultimately about cursed artifacts. So let's kind of dive into this subject, shall we? Joe is one of the co-founders of a show about heavy metal, and there's a potent and fully recent moral panic about heavy metal, at least in our lifespan. I want to throw this out to Joe. Uh, What can you tell our audience about backmasking as part of the satanic panic? Oh, man. Backmasking. Okay, first of all, what is backmasking? Backmasking is the idea... Where this started, 
I'm slightly out of touch to tell you from a historical perspective when this began, but I remember it in the 90s being one of the pieces of the satanic panic, where everyone said if you play the record backwards, it was some type of declaration of authority or submission to Satan, I would say. And that would... That, that was apparently rubbing off on people that listen to the music the normal way. Because I don't know about you, Lucas, but when I watch my movies and I listen to my music, I just can't seem to not remember it backwards. You know, I heard someone say once that if you watch Jaws backwards, it's about a shark that throws up so many people they have to open a beach. But let's get real. Most people aren't <laughs> watching fuck? Jaws that... <laughs> I love that joke. I never get to tell it. It's so much fun. Well done, sir. I I can't take credit for it. I saw that years ago online. I don't remember where it surfaced, but I will I will not take credit for it, but it's very funny. Right. Um Yeah, when you play something backwards, it sounds weird and it can be used in a lot of music. Uh think about uh the way some rhythms that like the butthole surfers use sounds weird and and bizarre. It's not that you've just taken two tabs of acid, which if you're listening to the butthole surfers, there's a non-zero chance you've just done that. It's that they're intentionally playing with tempo and they're playing stuff backwards. The idea of backmasking was that you could play a, a, a statement backwards. We'll say, um, God is dead. You could record God is dead play it backwards within the background of a song and for some reason presumably satan it's going to rub off on the listener and they're going to think oh god is actually dead and i should listen to ozzy osbourne okay so for those of you who remember the 80s and 90s ozzy osbourne is what was at the time what you might describe as a drunk and didn't sober up until you know the early 90s and get his life on track so as he once said in an interview, I can barely conjure myself out of bed in the morning, let alone conjure the devil. And yet there are people who claimed if you played certain Aussie songs backwards, like I think it was Suicide Solution, that if you played it backwards, you'd get the message, do it. Which presumably means shoot yourself, but whatever. It was tried in court. It never really went anywhere, but people really believed in bas- backmasking. Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, all of the classics got accused of this at some point. Any harm, any death, any self-solutioning, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, there's nothing good about that. And I have a very hard time reviewing some of those classic court cases, not just about backmasking, but about heavy metal being the reason people do bad things. And taking any minute of the accusations seriously. Nobody listened to a record and then decided to do something. Every single person that has ever done something, there's another reason for it. Sure. And if somebody had listened to them, I think that's generally the consensus. If you had just listened to that person, it would have been avoidable. But it feels like someone's looking for blame and you're blaming the wrong person. Well, every single time, I think. I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because it's kind of tempting to assume at any point that, like, music panic is a new kind of moral panic, that it could only have happened in the era of easily available music like CDs and uh, audio cassettes, but it isn't. Let's remember the amount of moral panic 
about Elvis Presley. There was this belief that by, I don't know, like wiggling his hips on stage, Elvis Presley posed a grave moral threat to the young women of America who were attracted to his presence and his music. That panic isn't really new either. It was just at that time the most recent iteration of it. Any music that has a good, steady rhythm seems to draw this sort of ire. Uh, It's worth noting that a lot of this music was initially performed as early Delta blues and jazz by black musicians, or it had its root in like Latin American uh, music traditions. In short, some of this panic was racist, but there was also like sex panic going on there too. But it doesn't stop there. Like, okay, yeah, Elvis, uh, we have parents. I have uh, uh, aunts and uncles who remember Elvis when he first really broke. Okay, fine. But that's a little too little too recent. Joe, have, have you or has any of our audience heard of a song called Gloomy Sunday? I'm going to have to look that up. Give me just a moment. By all means. Um, I have included a link in our, our talking points, actually, for a good copy of it. It's not the original performance of it, but it's worth hearing. Ah, Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. the shadows I live with Little white flowers will never awaken you. Not where the black coach. Okay, so we don't need to listen to the whole song. Um Make sure that links in the show notes too. Oh, I don't know if we can yeah, include that yeah, we, in the we'll recording. See, we'll see what we can do about that. So, uh, "Gloomy Sunday" was originally uh, written and published in 1933 by a Hungarian pianist, and I'm sorry, I'm absolutely going to butcher this man's name, and I feel bad about it already. Rezo Ceres. This song uh, is probably better known in pop consciousness under the name "The Hungarian Suicide Song." Allegedly. This song is so incredibly sad that it can cause people to kill themselves. The history of this song is pretty deep, and it's kind of outside the scope of this episode, honestly. Uh, So we played that quick section for it so you got to hear it. As Joe pointed out, that was Billie Holiday's rendition, which is kind of one of the gold, uh, gold standards of that edition. And the song is now something of a jazz standard. It's been played by a lot of people. Uh, Here is a short list of people who have recorded versions of that song. Lou Rawls, Ray Charles, Etta James, Lydia Lunch, Elvis Costello, Mark Allman, Serge Gainsbourg, Diamanda Galas, Bjork, and the Dead Milkmen of all people. That list barely scratches the surface of artists who have Gloomy Sunday in their repertoire. Those musicians also don't have a pile of corpses attached to their name due to that song either. We all know deep down, I think, if we're being honest, that cursed music doesn't exist either. And yet, on some on some level, I think we all want this, right? I think it's a topic that's fun, right? It's like talking about any sort of haunting. You know, when we talked about 
post a few weeks ago during our horror cinema verite quadrilogy of episodes, <laughs> we talked about this idea that it's scary to think that something is in your space that can influence you in a negative way, but you seem to have no way to dispose yourself of it. So whenever you have this idea of, if you listen to this song, you're going to want to kill yourself. Something about that, I think, appeals to the curious, always to the curious, right? But as an idea, this is a cursed piece of media. This is dangerous. And I'm going to play something for you uh, in a moment that I think... I think this is the best visual. This is this is an extra from the film The Conjuring. Oh yeah. Are the, you familiar with Annabelle? Um, the real Annabelle. Yeah. Okay. So let me explain not only for the audience what the hell we're talking about if you're unaware, but also kind of my stance on it. Right. Okay. So allegedly, a pair, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, aka the Warrens were a pair of, um, I don't know, Ghostbusters, for lack of a better term. They have a reputation uh, largely due to modern pop culture about being kind of the real deal Ghostbusters. Well, the reality of Ed and Lorraine Warren is they were kind of fucking grifters, actually. That seems to be the common thread is that they show up at, like, the Amityville Horror. They show up for Annabelle the Doll, which... By the way, the, all of the Conjuring movies that have Annabelle the doll, it's not a big spooky doll. It's its uh, a little Orphan Annie doll. It's actually kind of cute in a way. I digress. There's a general assumption that the Warrens and their Museum of the Supernatural, I guess is what they call it, that there really is some true stories to their ghost hunting and all of that. But Joe has pulled up the trailer, or not the trailer, but a featurette from the film featuring a very late in her life Lorraine Warren. She uh, recently passed away, I think, in the last few years. She made a lot of appearances on all of those ghost hunting shows that we mm -hmm. talked about a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. I just want to—I want you to listen to what she has to say about the real Annabelle. Okay. Right here is a conjuring mirror. Everything and anything in here we have investigated. Don't ever touch anything. And if you do, let me know. This is the worst thing in here, it's that doll. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stare at it though. So you, you can take the picture, but I'm not gonna stare at it because that is, that has done badly, bad harm on, on a lot of people. You have to conjure the spirits in order to get him. You know, you're not going to get him by just walking around here. And that's the one that's sort of depicted a little bit in this movie, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. That, that's the Annabelle doll. Yes. Let me ask you. Mm -hmm. Would the conjuring films or anything with Annabelle in it, would they be better films? Would they be more or less scary? insert the list of questions, if they had used the actual doll's visage and not the completely distorted, we want this thing to make you feel the exorcist when you look at it, would it be more or less scary? Or would it be a better film? Okay, so I kind of feel like uh, most of our long-term fans 
know that I'm a little loath to talk about my personal life, just because it's not tremendously important to what we're doing here, I don't think. But it's kind of worth noting, I think, like most people, and most people kind of of my age group, I'm in my 40s, most of us have memories, at least in part, of either relatives or people we knew at some point in our life, typically uh, older folk, who had creepy-ass dolls, right? I can think of a couple of relatives off the top of my head who I spent a lot of time with as a child who had either creepy ceramic dolls or weird sewn-together dolls from their childhood or something they made as kind of a, you know, a tchotchke of their own. And I think people... It's maybe it's an uncanny valley thing, but we're afraid of that stuff, right? Partially because it's too a little too uncanny when it's done correctly, but partially because sometimes creepy shit's just creepy shit, right? We just got done talking a lot about the thing in our previous episode, and I always go back to that um, that article put out by the Onion many years ago that uh, what what a move what a movie fear what what movie scares you says about your fears and when you're afraid of the thing sometimes you're just afraid of freaky shit let's get real dolls are sometimes just creepy as shit <laughs> but i don't think anyone would look at a uh a, a, a raggedy ann i'm sorry it wasn't little orphan annie a raggedy ann doll i don't think anyone's gonna look at a raggedy ann doll and think immediately oh that's creepy that's unsettling but there is this part of me and maybe this is just because I'm kind of a bad person at the bottom of it all who thinks that the child's doll causing all of these uh, cinemat brutal cinematic deaths is actually a little more perverse and a little more upsetting than the Annabelle doll, which is kind of stylized to be uber creepy. And don't get me wrong, like as far as an iconic uh, movie horror thing goes, the Annabelle doll of those films it, it it ticks the boxes, right? Like, it's scary looking, it's anthropomorphic, there's a vague menace about it. But I think the Raggedy Ann doll is way more fun. And that's just me. I Again, I'm, I'm kind of a kind of a mean-spirited person when it comes to horror, maybe. that I, I don't know. I want to ask the filmmakers, did you do a screen test with the actual doll and say, the actual visage of the doll, of course, and everybody said, it's not really scary? Oh, we got to make a creepy looking doll. But I bring up that example because here is someone, if you want to look at this from a scientific perspective, here is someone who truly believes she has a room of her house. Are you real quick? Are you talking about Lorraine Warren? I am talking about Lorraine Warren. Okay. Who truly believes she has a room of her house that is full of cursed objects. How she talks about that matters in the discussion hmm, okay. because it's not about is this truly a dangerous thing it's gotten to a point whether it's if we have to work our way backwards of course right it's stories then before that it was incidents it was an investigation there was something that happened that led her and her husband and everyone that interacts with her to retell this story about this truly cursed item do you want to open the door and let it out hmm. and see what happens so i'm not interested mm, man there is this part of me that thinks that we kind of have to meet reality halfway right 
Like, we all share a terra firma. We're all in the same world. There are hard rules of physics that govern how things go. If I slip off of the the chair I'm sitting in right now, for whatever reason, ragdoll physics suddenly takes over, I slip out of this chair and hit well my done, head. Sir. <laughs> uh, right? it, it, put that in your head is all I'm going to say. If I slip out of this chair, or I fall off the stool and I hit my head, there's going to be problems, maybe a concussion or worse. We all share the hard rules of, of physical objective reality. We all share an objective universe, right? But here's the thing. How you deal with that objective universe is purely subjective, right? You're all stuck in your own heads and we're all sharing the same world on some level. But the truth of the matter is we're not. You know, we sit and we talk about, well, all of us inhabit the same world with the same physics. And that's true. But none of us are inhabiting the same headspace. I, I want to say, oh, God, was it Heidegger? I can't remember the philosopher who said it, but had said that if you could communicate telepathically with a lion, anything they said to you would be utterly unintelligible. Not because your telepathy is faulty, but because you and the lion inhabit utterly separate worlds. And as such, there would be no able there there would be no way for you to be able to communicate across that line. I like this. It's like the Davus in Planescape, right? They just communicate in symbols, or at least that's our perception or our character's perception. I have no idea what you're talking about, but because <laughs> I believe that this is a good episode, I'm gonna go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I think there's there's an interesting thing there, right? Like clearly one of two things is happening with Lorraine Warren in that video. She is either committed to a long-term bit that she actually doesn't believe, but she's committed to the story because it's paid her bills for a while and she's willing to stick with it because it's paid her bills and it then got popular. Or she's a true believer. And I, I don't I don't know that either is true. I don't know which is the fact. It's maybe it's kind of somewhere in between the two. I, I don't know. But I think we kind of meet reality halfway. I think someone who has literally no belief in the power of Annabelle the doll could walk in and just smash their face against the glass and nothing might happen to them. But then again, I've never had anyone use a cursed poppet on me before that I'm aware of anyway. And if you have, in fact, attempted to place a curse on me, reach out to us at the Frightland Pub. <laughs> reach out to us at the fright lab podcast at gmail.com. That is the worst call to action I've ever written into any script. I might explain a lot. You know, it would explain how you and I Depending are Depending on the timing, right? Yeah. Okay. So cursed objects, uh, maybe they're real. Maybe they're not. I don't know. What about video games? Okay. It's pretty hard to ignore the power of video games as a lasting cultural force, despite many early prognostications. Most people felt that games like Pong were never going to be more than a brief diversion. But I'm willing to wager there's a fairly sizable portion of our audience who cried during Final Fantasy VII when Eris is killed. Whoa! Spoilers for the ending of disc one of a 30-year-old game. You're right. Okay, so <laughs> video game that they recently remade into they, an action game, which you know, you know, no one ever talks about that game. I wonder why that is. Yep. Anyway, I'm with you on that one. Video games kind of run the gamut in terms of like subject matter and genre, right? 
many of us, myself included, uh, have played horror-themed games, and I'm willing to wager a shiny American nickel that many of us have at least one Call of Duty section in our saved files. And if we're right to believe the moral panics of our time, rather like the musical panic we were talking about earlier, many of us, because we've played Call of Duty, are at risk of becoming mass shooters, right? No. Come on. No. Yeah, exactly. We all It's a game. We all know better than that. But I want you to take a second and open up your mind real wide, all right? What if What if there was a video game that could absolutely destroy you? Almost as if it were a cursed video game. Silent Hill? No. That game is called Polybius. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, baby. We're, we're talking Polybius. Okay, so I know some of you are going, okay, Lucas, what the hell are you talking about this time? Okay, so it's basically understood that the whole Polybius thing is a myth, an urban myth, but kind of a persistent urban myth. I'm going to give you a, a rough overview of the story as it's typically told. A video game cabinet pops up in the 80s in the Pacific Northwest, uh, somewhere around Seattle or Portland. And this cabinet is for a game called Polybius. Now, stories about Polybius as a game vary. Like, what type of game was it? It's typically assumed to be an early shooter, kind of a spaceship kind of game. Very you know, Stories vary. But I've heard it described as similar to... Space Invaders, I've heard it described similar to, oh God, some more obscure stuff. It's kind of not the point. But the point of the story is that people would go into video game arcades, which I know some of you are going, Lucas, what's a video game arcade? And my response is you need to finish your your homework and go to bed. It's eight o'clock. Um, people would go to video game arcades and they would play Polybius and it would like damage them. They would get obsessed with the game. It would get in their head, and that's when it would really screw them up. Now, there has been a ton of media dealing with or talking about Polybius. I've seen a couple of YouTube documentaries, uh, an episode of The Angry Video Game Nerd. Well and, done. And a Nine Inch Nails music video uh, for the song Less Than, which is a really killer track. Uh, that use images from a supposed game of Polybius uh, that a fan made, as well as a multi-episode podcast about Polybius. Um, the story of the game is kind of well-known in this, like, geek culture way. I don't know about you, Joe. You've been groaning at me even bringing up Polybius. It's not even a creepypasta anymore. It's a meme, right? Yeah. Everybody's taking a shot at Polybius because... Let's be honest, it's a fun topic to approach. It's more like a scary story to me at this point that you can tell to your gamer friends that haven't heard it yet. But once you get past it, it I mean, I think Kevin Smith wrote the best line uh, for the Clark's animated series uh, where episode five, Randall is playing a game called Pharaoh and he gets picked up by a couple guys in blue suits and taken off somewhere because like he's the he's the greatest player of all time and in pharaoh you have to move rocks and build the pyramids so he says to the guy you're gonna make me a starship pilot he says no the point of the game is to move rocks you see so the whole point of this game was 
you know, the, the part you didn't tell at least was it mysteriously disappeared, right? Some men in black showed up and took right. it as a research thing. So again, to quote the Clerks animated series, like in the movie, The Last Starfighter. In fact, that's where I got the idea, you see. So it's just a fun story at this point. It, it's not even cursed at this point because supposedly there was only one and it disappeared shortly after it was seen. Right. And how do you handle that? Well, in theory, you don't because it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I, you know, man, I got to be honest. Like, I don't know that I've ever been that obsessed with a game. Like, okay, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Bioshock series, especially Bioshock 2. I've played a lot of hours of Bioshock 2 on the solo campaign. Okay, fine. There was that kind of brief, embarrassing time period from like the mid of 2019, I'm going to say like 2021. So that's like the pandemic. Uh, along with a particularly upsetting breakup I had where I played maybe a thousand hours of Gears of War 5 multiplayer. Um, I, I played a lot of Horde. I reached a kind of embarrassing level of expertise in the game. It, it's I, I'm not proud, but I will never back down from it, you know? I don't know that any game has obsessed me to what we might call MK Ultra levels, right? I don't know that I've ever done something for so long that it's broken my brain other than a horror podcast. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, there's part of me that looks at the whole Polybius thing and thinks, yeah, it's a moral panic like every other moral panic that's happened in my lifetime and is happening in my lifetime. But it's the one that's maybe, like, viewed as the silliest? I don't know. A lot of this immediately also calls up a movie like The Ring or its Japanese predecessor, Ringu. Uh, I am a fan of the original Verbinski's uh, The Ring. Uh, saw it in the theater. It was a great experience. And I really admire the first Ringu film. It's a series that has also generated a lot of iterations. It's become kind of a modern classic, which, you know, well, that's cool. I'm happy with that. We all know the story of The Ring, though, right? Or of Ringu. You watch a videotape. You get a phone call that warns you. Seven days. And unless you spread the movie to other people within the next seven days, you're going to get the hell killed out of you. Again, it's a fun and interesting premise. It feels very modern, right? Maybe it's showing its age a little because videotapes are not really a thing we use, but it's a modern technology, ultimately. It has a tone that many other cursed objects in literature seem to have, uh, with horror literature especially. Stuff like this reminds me a lot of Lovecraft's Necronomicon, a sort of spooky magical MacGuffin book that apparently has like dark powers in it. For those of you who are fans of the Evil Dead series, you know what I'm talking about. And if the Evil Dead series is to be believed, any recitation of the book's texts will call up all manner of demons, ghosts, and other beasties, right? Faster than you can say, Klatu, Vrata, Nikto. You're going to be in for a rough night. There may be resurrections. You might lose your hand. So I don't know, like, we, you know, the Necronomicon is the first thing that spots to mind for me. And going back to that uh, video of, uh, the, of Lorraine Warren, she had a copy of what's called the Simon Necronomicon in her home. Now, Joe... I'm going to go on a limb and say I'm the only idiot in this room who knows what the Simon Necronomicon is. Have you heard of this before? Would you kindly give me a recap of that book? Oh, boy. Okay, so 
Somewhere uh, prior to the 1980s, this book ends up in paperback publication, calling itself the Necronomicon. All right. It is uh, put out in the world by someone who identifies themselves as Simon. Now, I've heard multiple theories as to who Simon, quote unquote, is. Uh, I'm not going to say any of the who I've heard this person was because I can't prove it. I have heard from good authority that who this person might be might be a you know a particular author but at any rate the simon necronomicon as it's called purports itself to be a tome of black magic that you can pick up at virtually any bookstore for about 10 bucks that has spirit or spells for conjuring up spirits gods and demons to do all sorts of nifty stuff okay groovy that's cool the actual Simon Necronomicon uh, does actually contain some interesting historical stuff. There's some uh, Sumerian mythology in it, as memory serves me. But otherwise, it's it's a work of fiction. It's based on H.P. Lovecraft. Cool. But, like, is that my favorite cursed artifact? I mean, I don't know. Uh, there is the Le Merchand box, a.k.a. the Lament Configuration, a.k.a. the Hellraiser puzzle box. Uh, or, like, the cursed tapes from the Ring Ringu. I mean... Joe, do you have a favorite cursed artifact? From a single film, if I have to pick one. This is going to take a second, because there's just so many options, right? Yeah. The idea of a MacGuffin, to me, is a good idea. And I mm -hmm. think Hitchcock really put that out there as every movie has something that's happening because of a thing. And the thing is the reason the movie is happening. The thing itself is not important. If I have to pick one, and I'm sure I could change my mind on what my favorite is with a little more time to think about it. You said the Hellraiser puzzle box. I think it's my favorite one because here is this dangerous item that is supposed to bring upon levels of torture and pleasure. I know what I said. Um, that have never been seen on the internet, which begs the real question. Why isn't there a Hellraiser film where the torture becomes a thing on modern consumption websites. There was uh, one of the latter day uh, Hellraiser sequels, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on which one, but where there was, I think it might have been Hellworld, Hellraiser Hellworld. Mm. Yeah, uh, you're where right. there was a website and it did something, and then there was Pinhead. Um, yeah, because Pinhead, right? That's the only reason. I mean, long story short, you have a script, you don't know what to do with it, add a Cenobite, bingo. Um, oh, there, it was a Hellraiser movie this whole time! Ha-ha! Um, honestly, do you want to know what one of my favorite cursed artifacts in film is? Let's hear it. The Briefcase from Pulp Fiction. That is one of the greatest MacGuffins in the history of film. It's one of the greatest in the history of film. It's so, it's, it is beautifully done. And there's a number of fan theories that I've heard that it's, oh, the the contents of the container are Mar Marcellus Wallace's soul, and the guys that are killed at the beginning of the movie are like rogue occultists or theologians or something who figured out a way to get his soul out for some Faustian bargain. I have no idea if that's what Quentin Tarantino wanted, but I love it because everyone who comes in contact with the briefcase, who doesn't immediately renounce it and return it, ends up dying or wildly transformed. It's It's kind of a neat... Uh, a fan read. It's nice headcanon for that movie. I never bought into that one. I don't buy into it either, but I love the idea of it. It's... What, what does Travolta say when he sees it? Uh, yeah, we're happy. <laughs> Vincent, are we happy? 
yeah, we we happy. Marcellus Wallace is not a good person. So finding anything of his in a briefcase well, is not going I, to put a smile on your face. I mean, I wonder, because there's a part of me that thinks that uh, a guy like Vincent, as portrayed by John Travolta, uh, Vincent Vega, is such yes. a is such a bad person that by beholding the human soul, irrespective of whose soul it is, for the first time in front of him in that glowing golden light may have been an absolutely beautiful thing. He ends up dead, I think, a day and a half later in the timeline of the film. He gets shot. So, yeah, it's a fun theory. And again, spoilers for Pulp Fiction. I'm sorry. I'm just spoiling all sorts of old stuff today. Grandpa Lucas apparently has more stories to tell. So, uh, in the beginning of the episode, I brought up three movies. Uh, Fury of the Demon, Cigarette Burns, and Antrim. I love movies like The Fury of the Demon and Cigarette Burns. Antrim? Mm, that's kind of another story. It has the DNA of a decent movie in it, but it's kind of missing a point. Without spoiling these movies, because it kind of relates to everything we've been talking about, this is this is going to require some some circular explanations. Okay, so I have never seen a movie that I think could destroy me. I've seen some movies that had a hard emotional hit on me. I've seen movies that were definitely scary, but a movie that destroys you, probably not. It's all, again, part of that fictional conceit. So the rough plot of The Fury of the Demon, Cigarette Burns, and Antrim, is that there is a film that exists that anytime it's shown, it has this absolute effect of destroying human beings. It either leads to their death, there's accidents, there's waves of violence, and so on and so forth. I thought that was Final Destination. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that too many people died in like hideous car wrecks after seeing Final Destination. I imagine like law of averages, a bunch of people got in car accidents after seeing it in the theater, but that's just because millions of people saw it in the theater, right? Fair enough. Okay, so here's the trope. A rare piece of cinema gets shown, bad things happen to everyone who's in the theater who sees it. So again, here's how the I think the trope works. And follow me. I, I admit I'm kind of rambling here, but just follow me. In Fury of the Demon, we are told that this film was actually directed by Georges Millier, who is one of the founders of modern film. That he did something with this short film, The Rage du Demon, or The Fury of the Demon, that caused outbreaks of absolute violence throughout the theater. So the movie Fury of the Demon, I first caught on Tubi because of course I caught it on Tubi. It's a short film. It's about an hour and it deals with the story of Le Rage du Dimon in a mockumentary way. It is not a real film. It does not exist. Uh, Georges Millier, as best as we can tell, never made a movie that actually caused outbreaks of violence. But the premise is such that he was involved with spiritualists or something, and that causes the film to cause these terrible things to happen. Okay, fine. Well, then there is Cigarette Burns, which is typically called John Carpenter's Cigarette Burns. It's part of the Masters of Horror series. I've heard Cigarette Burns described as the fourth unofficial part of the unofficial Apocalypse Trilogy see our previous episode on the Apocalypse Trilogy to get further details on that if this is for some reason your first episode. 
Okay, so the basic premise is that Norman Reedus, a very young Norman Reedus, is uh, running an art house theater and he's contacted by an eccentric uh, billionaire guy who collects films played by Udo Kier, another one of those actors, you put him in anything, I'll watch it, uh, to get this film called The Absolute End of the World. And of course, it's basically the same as Le Rage du Dumont that you see it and it causes, it's this terrible, scary movie that causes terrible things to happen. Got it. Okay. It's about an hour-ish long. It's directed by John Carpenter. It's very scary and it's a lot of fun. I recommend it highly. It's the same trope. And then finally, there's Antrim. Oh, man. Um, God, I want to like Antrim. I really do because it's built up in the first like 10 or 15 minutes in such a way that it, it, it again it repeats the same story as the, the the fury of the demon and cigarette burns a film was made it came out allegedly in the 1960s or 1970s where you watch it terrible things happen to you but what antrim then does is it tells you oh the film has been found it's called antrim which i think means like entrance or doorway and so they proceed to show you the film that's allegedly supposed to all have all this crazy stuff happen in it. And there's a lot of fun moments in Antrim, but it's kind of clumsy in a way. And it doesn't, it's supposed to be in the 1970s and it just never, it just never looks the part. It never feels real. It makes the mistake of showing you the thing that's supposed to drive everyone mad and kill you. And it, it, it doesn't do that. It's spooky in a couple of spots. It has some neat uh, special effects. It has some neat ideas and has some cool visuals. But I'm going to go on the record and say that Antrim is not very good. It's 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 a cool premise and it's worth seeing because it's a cool premise, but it's executed in this clumsy way. Um, Can I offer a alternative film if you really want to see something that will lead to bad things? Yeah, sure. Um, Terror Firma. Not sure I've seen that one. Well, if you've seen The Toxic Avenger, then you're familiar with Lloyd Kaufman and all the films that he makes. God bless you, Uncle Lloyd. Absolutely. And Terra Firma, if you've never seen it, well, don't, because it is the gross-out fest of all gross-out fests, uh, may or may not exceed brain dead in the body count of fluids. Ooh, that's so. A, there's it sounds a film. very wet. Absolutely, there's a film that when you watch it, you're not going to feel good. It's going to feel like a bad decision, and you may make more bad decisions <laughs> with the rest of your day. But that's not a horror film, and that's something that I was saving till the end. We talk about scary things leading to other scary things, and if you do this thing or listen to this thing, nobody ever talks about Lloyd Kaufman's films and says if you watch that. You're going to become a deviant of some type. I'm not sure which one, but I can find one in my book. Most of the people who've seen Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD do end up pretty weird, but I wonder if that's kind of a chicken and egg scenario. Absolutely. Know? Which came first? The answer is the person who wrote the check. Well, maybe. So I said that I have a theory about this trope, and I feel like we've kind of rambled because now we're talking Sergeant Kabuki Man. Um, Sergeant Kabuki Man's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Can we do that? <sighs> no, we can't. No, um, I want to. Okay, so my theory, and uh, th it comes from, in part, the film Fury of the Demon. Uh, one of the commenters who's supposed to be like a film critic uh, makes this interesting point that 
Films actually are kind of magical, right? He argues that a series of moving images with audio that's recorded on the set with music can cause people to feel things that they otherwise wouldn't. It's like watching a hallucination, I think. And as such, film, and to the same extent maybe, uh, music or photography or really any art, um, can be a powerful form of evocation. It can act like magic. It blends art and technology and causes feeling causes you to have feelings that you never had before. Think about a really good book, any good book, doesn't matter, doesn't have to be horror. Think of any good book. You're willing to sit and read words on a page and then hallucinate wildly while you're reading it because it's so beautiful and it evokes so many images. Now, here's the thing though, right? Uh, I've made my opinion explicitly clear about how I feel about things like uh, video games turning people into mass shooters or backmasking in music. It's nonsense. It's not real. There's no science to back it up. But I can imagine uh, how a person who's dealing with some really extremely intense dark emotions, maybe someone who's dealing with an untreated mental issue or serious depression or something like that, could be hard hit by a song like Gloomy Sunday. But I've listened to a song that I consider equally depressing, um, Hurt, as, as written by Nine Inch Nails and also performed uh, by Johnny Cash incredibly heartbreaking songs really really beautiful and distressing in equal measure but neither of those songs in the many times i've heard them have led me to attempt self-immolation it's not to say that anyone hasn't killed themselves because they heard a song at the wrong moment or it caused some chain reaction yeah i suppose that's possible that's fair but then you can't really blame the movie or the music right there had to have been some other underlying problem there, or some other issue they had that hadn't been addressed and diagnosed. Maybe the music didn't help. I, I don't know, but I don't think you can blame the musician for that, despite what happened in the 1980s and early 90s. Ultimately, I think people are afraid of losing control. The fear that some force, some entity, or some power could exist that could rob you of agency is a deep, old fear. We talked about this in the last episode, remember? The magic of filmmaking might be a good vector, a good way to infect someone with this weird consent virus that destroys your ability to have agency. Music appeals to our really ancient feelings. Humans are a musical species, if nothing else. So therefore, maybe music might unlock some ancient inborn self-destruct code you get you get the point i'm trying to make i think it's hard to talk about art without talking about the artist and the viewer the receiver of the art i want to believe every piece of art has a reason even if that reason is just because so when I listen to a song, I want to ask the question, what were they trying to say when they wrote this, when they recorded it? Did they sit down and say, people are going to feel that? I hear that all the time when I'm in a studio. Visual art, films, things that you see with your eyes, hear with your ears, speak with your lips. 
these are things that they're supposed to make us feel something, right? That's the ideal. We want to believe what we're hearing, seeing, saying meant something. It's not just generated business schlock. If we don't do something with this, we're going to lose our copyright and then somebody's going to make their own movie with our characters. We want it to mean something, right? What is the saddest song to you? The saddest song? Oh, you know I'm a connoisseur of like depressing music. That is a that's an incredibly tough song. I I would have to re- reach deep into my bag to find a, the, the saddest song. Let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. Is the saddest song to you the saddest song you've heard? Mine is not. Mine is a fairly positive song. But if I hear it, I'm bawling like a baby, man. And it's because it makes me feel somebody that's no longer here. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I see your point there. And that, and that's an interesting question, right? Like I think sadness is not universal in the sense that everyone finds the same thing sad. You know, I have, I've had enough personal tragedy in my life as most people have to have uh, certain associations with certain things that I, I will never uh, be able to outrun. I might deal with them better as time goes on, but you know, it, it's some stuff is just sad because it's sad, right? Well, okay, true enough, but if your greatest sadness is, I don't know, the death of a a friend or a loved one, well, if you live in a culture that doesn't view death as the end, that views that consciousness might have some persistence, or that the soul might move on and reincarnate, or whatever, whatever theological disposition you happen to fall into, you might not view death as a bad thing. You might view it as... Well, they've moved on. They're not suffering. They're now in uh, a different life or they've moved on to some otherworldly paradise or I will share the same space with this person again when I give up my physical body. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, I I think what we what we code as sad, what we decide is sad is both profoundly cultural and profoundly personal because there are plenty of things that I should be sad about according to my upbringing and according to the, the the region of the country I'm from and things like that, that I, I don't have that feeling because I have my own personal opinions on a subject or I don't have a, a certain shared experience, whatever. We could, we could talk that in circles. But I think there's a layer there that, you know, in the case of like Gloomy Sunday, it's hard to ignore that it's a, it's a melancholy song. It's written in a way that crosses a lot of cultural lines and it hits in a particular way. But you'll have to pardon me if I'm a little reluctant to cry at anything the Dead Milkmen ever did. <laughs> and I say that as a fan of the Dead Milkmen, but guys, uh, I'll cry to Bjork. I'm not going to cry to the Dead Milkmen. I've got lines. It's the best example I can give because no one ever said to the producer, when people hear this, they're going to cry, man. This is a sad song. <laughs> I'm putting out this cursed song, right? If you listen to that song, you're going to cry. It's always something taken to the extreme. Right. It's always you're going to kill yourself or you're going to hurt someone else. No. Let's talk about the stuff that's sincere that actually makes you feel a real emotion. And the best artists are the ones who play that song anyway, who show that film anyway, because... I wasn't really going for that, but if it made you feel something, 
That's the most important thing, right? It's, I want the art to be sincere. So if you're going to feel it, you never hear somebody talk about, this song's really sad. I was sad when I wrote it. I was sad when I recorded it. When I play it, I'm sad. When people listen to it, they're sad. And unfortunately, one of you in this auditorium of 10,000 is going to want to kill somebody. <laughs> Nobody says that. So what are we talking about? We're talking about scary stories you tell in the dark. At the end of the day, how to handle cursed media. It's a scary story in the dark. And well, we're not even talking about belief. We talked about Lorraine Warren earlier, right? Whether or not you believe it, I believe she does. Hmm. And that puts out there some vibes. I don't want to mess with it. Okay, so two thoughts. We'll, we'll call this our final, my final thoughts on it anyway. So one, talking about uh, music that is really, really sad. I've seen Nine Inch Nails, I think, two or three times live. I've seen a lot of live shows, so I'm kind of, uh, I can't remember all, all of the ones I've seen. But at least the two times that I can recall, Reznor has ended the set with Hurt. And it is a production. There is a Now a that's a downer. It is a downer ending. But as far as endings of a song go, it is, you know, a bit definitive. <laughs> it's it's supposed to be the end of someone's life. Yeah. Is yeah. it? Yeah. The the if you listen to the okay. God, I'm I will sound keep like such myself. A I will find a way. Well, if you listen to the entirety of the Downward Spiral as an album, the track right before it, the Downward Spiral, uh, the only lyrics are, and you'll have to pardon me if I'm butchering them, and this is going to show you the type of music dork I am. If memory serves me cor uh, correctly, the end lyrics to the song, The Downward Spiral, is he couldn't believe how easy it was to put the gun against his face. Bang. Such a, So much blood for such a tiny little hole. Problems have solutions, though. A lifetime of fucking things up and fixed in one determined flash. Everything is blue inside my head. A hazy shade of mushroom blow spilling from my skull. Or something like that. I, I don't remember it fully here and now. But I've seen Nine Inch Nails live twice, and they close it with, with that song, with Hurt. And it's a great great way to end a show. And it's a bummer of a song, but it's a great way to end a show. And it works. <laughs> and here I am, not a ghost, recording a podcast. I have never killed myself at the end of Hurt. Okay, got it. Good. I always think back to the comedian Bill Hicks, who cracked the joke once about the whole satanic panic. He, he hit the nail on the head. He said, what musician who is making millions of dollars performing songs wants to kill his audience who is sitting in the recording room going nigel come here open your mind real wide what if we kill the blooming audience could i go back to selling shoes you know no one is thinking that no one in judas priest was wanting their audience dead it didn't happen i think again going back to my original point i think the fear there is people are afraid of not being able to control themselves I think we live in a culture that really espouses self-control in a big way, whether or not we actually practice that as another story, but we espouse this idea of self-control to, to an astonishing degree. And the thought that a song or a movie or a video game or a cursed book or whatever could rob you of that agency, kind of like what we were talking about in the previous episode, I think that's genuinely terrifying. I think the cursed film that makes audience go crazy and kill each other 
I think it's just an interesting modern conceit. And I think if we were talking in the era of Georges Méliès, some sort of proto-podcast, as it were, that was sent to you on 19 wax records or wax cylinders as opposed to one convenient MP3, yeah, I think we'd be having a very, very different, but very similar conversation nonetheless. But that's my theory, and you can make of that what you will. So, with that, we are going to wrap up here for tonight. I want to know what you guys think about this. Do you have a favorite movie or a song that is allegedly cursed? What's your favorite urban legend surrounding media? Let us know. Reach out to us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on the uh, flaming wreckage that is Twitter at fright underscore lab underscore pod or on the uh, eminently fun letterbox app uh, at fright lab pod we may move over to meta's threads we're talking it over uh let us know if you want us there joe can you tell the audience where they might find your other works preferably not the cursed ones well that's going to be a hard one because you see we are creating so many heavy metal related podcasts at discussmetal.com we talk about your favorite bands my favorite bands we talk about heavy metal subjects if you're a fan of all things nerdy star wars star trek indiana jones and the last crusade yes it's the best film i'll die on that hill check out the nerf herder council aj and john they've got the lock on all things fun and i've been hanging out with aj talking about star trek strange new world season two it's all right. Um, <laughs> if this is the first time you've been listening to the Fright Lab, or if it's not the first time, I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We want to hear from every single one of you. You heard Lucas say it, the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. What I want you to do now, though, is take out your phone, scroll to the left, scroll to the right, find the place where you get to check the box, you get to give the thumbs up, you get to leave the five-star review, and tell us what you think about the show. Tell your friends about the show. We love talking about scary subjects, and maybe we'll be talking about some more experimental topics. I don't know, maybe movie commentaries, maybe little short Fright Lab special things, maybe short Fright Lab episode ideas that don't take an hour to get through, Lucas. Um, maybe some Patreon stuff. We want to hear from you. Again, the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. Lucas, tell everyone how much we love independent artists, independent media, and independent music. So there's two points worth making here is that word of mouth really matters, whether you're spreading the gospel of the Fright Lab or whether or not you're trying to spread your new project. Getting people to listen is hard work, but people won't hear it if they don't know about it. So we understand, and we want to take part in that. We are big believers in a DIY ethos, and we believe in spreading the word. So if you have a horror-related project, be that music, be that art, be that a horror podcast of your own, we want to know about it, and we want to help spread the word. As I say, with virtually every episode now, if you want to get there fast, you go there by yourself. But if you want to get there safe, you go with the team. And we're trying to assemble that team here at the Fright Lab. But in the meantime, the Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. Joe Wren is our producer and fearless co-host. I can mostly guarantee that he probably didn't put any subliminal messages in this episode, but we'll see what happens in the edit. We appreciate every single one of you, and we will talk to you very soon. 
who would never willingly expose his audience to a dangerous piece of Jill. <laughs> a dangerous piece of Jill. Hi. Have you met my cousin? Her <laughs> name's Jill. Let me try that again. Ugh. Oh, yeah? What else? We'll save this for an outtake. <laughs> we have a studio dog named Sky who decided to, to comment when, when, when Joe said, it's hard to talk about art, and, and Sky went, oh. That's really adorable. I'm Isn't not going to lie. It's a joke for you and I, because you and I are... We're, we're both cynical and we both love music and we both love media, but there's this part of me that thinks someone had little better to do than ruin a record needle going backwards or, or, or playing around with tape loops if they had that kind of skill. Ultimately, there's this part of me that thinks anyone who's looking for something is inevitably going to find it whether or not they find it. Let's not forget that during the Satanic Panic, there were people burning copies of the Mr. Ed theme song on vinyl because they said, if you played it backwards, this is a Satanic message. That's right. Mr. Ed, the talking horse show. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. That song, yeah. I think it was Snopes who said Mr. Ed was a zebra. What? Don't get into no, it. I'm just, just trying to derail you. I don't, need, I don't need another new rabbit hole right now. God. But yeah, I, I think you'll hear what you're looking for. Right. I mean, and, and maybe, maybe there are backmasking messages in an episode of the Frant Lab. Maybe. We send me up there for your 